This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. You know, for me, I can remember it uh, almost like it was yesterday. Uh, running out, jumping in our little car uh, under a cold uh, April evening in Portland, Oregon, uh, racing across the Broadway Bridge, going down to the Kaiser Permanente Hospital. And on the way, every once in a while, I'd reach across and touch my wife's hand and tell her it was going to be okay, just keep breathing, relax. She had her watch out, timing Uh, both the contractions and the time in between the contractions, hoping we're going to make it there to the hospital in time. Then I can remember 20 hours in a birthing room. (laughs) But then our lives changed forever when the doctor said, it's a girl. I went, wow, a girl. I've never had a girl before. It was an incredible moment, dancing around the room. I was so excited because in that moment, I had been given in an instant two of the greatest gifts any man can ever have. I was given the privilege of having new life given to me. Clean, innocent, pure new life as a gift to me. And with that, I was given a new title, one of the most honorable titles a man can ever wear. From that point on, I'd be called Dad. Wow. What an incredible feeling that was. I had earned it. I didn't deserve it. But in that moment, I received both those incredible gifts. Now, after the euphoria of that moment, we kind of settled down in the weeks and months to come in kind of a more ordinary existence. And during the time of that now ordinary existence, I suddenly realized that the miracle that was given to me as a dad, after God had given me that miracle, I was now being called on to perform a miracle. I was supposed to shape and mold this thing. And you know what, guys? I didn't have a clue. (laughs) what to do. You know, it's so funny how you move from the cheer, it's a girl, to the cry, help, I'm a parent. That's where I ended up. Reminds me of the story of the young dad and his son shopping. And being a fun dad, he stuck the little boy in the shopping cart and they went moving up and down the aisles, except the dad didn't realize that it was already past the son's nap time. So the son began to squirm and cry and whimper. And after a while, the little boy was picking up cans out of the shopping cart and dropping them on the floor. And when they'd come next to an aisle, he'd reach out and pull some cereal boxes off the the side of the aisle onto the floor. As he went up and down the aisles, the son began to throw a tantrum. There was a little old lady walking behind this young dad and his son. And as they moved up and down the aisles, she would hear the dad say, hang in there, Ronnie. It's, o- it's okay, Ronnie. Don't, don't do that, Ronnie. You're going to regret that 
You're going to regret that. Don't get out of control. That'd be terrible if you do that, Ronnie. Don't do it. Hang in there, buddy. When I got up to the pay line, a little lady came up and said, you know, I've been watching you. And, uh, you know, you really do a, a good job with your son, Ronnie. Young man turned back with a stress-filled face and said to the lady, ma'am, I'm Ronnie. <laughs> Hang in there, buddy. Don't do that. You're going to hurt somebody if you do. You know, men, fathering the future is both a thrilling and sometimes terrifying assignment. As someone once said, as parents, we are creators of human life second only to God himself. Whoa, that's an incredible assignment. You know, over the next three weeks, what I want to do is explore what it means to be a good dad. Today, we're going to kind of take a flyby of some big picture perspectives of parenting. Next week, we're going to get up close and personal, and I'm going to present to you a year-by-year -year game plan of how a dad raises a healthy son or daughter. And then finally, we'll finish before our Christmas break uh, looking at the four keys to maximum parenting. That's where we're going to be going together in the next three weeks. And whether you have a family or not, this is a wonderful opportunity to store away some nuggets of wisdom in helping you not only understand you and how you were raised and what you need to do when you become a father, or if you're a father, the things that you need to reemphasize or maybe readjust, or just enjoy the fact that you've been doing some things well. What I want to do is start by looking at 10 ingredients for a healthy family. You see them there on your outline. These are not opinions of mine. They're the result of research that George Barna, many of you know George Barna, he collected a number of studies on the family. And he's looked, as he looked at each of these studies, he found that there were some common elements in each of these studies that simply said, this is what a healthy family is all about. If you want more, more about that from his research, it's in his book, The Future of the American Family. So I'm going to give you these 10 ingredients. And as I do, just for your personal benefit, you can do your own little spontaneous survey. Uh, as I read each one of these, what you can do is put a plus or a minus next to each ingredient. A plus saying, this was true of my family, the family I grew up in or the family that I now have, or a minus saying, mm, this, this is a weak spot for us. This is an area we need to grow. So let me give you the 10 ingredients real quick. Here's what they are. Number one, a healthy family is characterized by strong, supportive, and honest communication. In a healthy family, people speak the truth to one another. They're not afraid to do that. They're not going behind each other's backs and whispering to other family members what's really going on. They can talk clear with one another. Number two, family members spend a large quantity of time together. Healthy families go beyond the quality time syndrome to quantity time. Number three, family members share a common faith and practice together. Uh, if you were with us last week, we talked about the faith element of the good life. And uh, just as an aside, I want to say congratulations to a number of guys in the room who have indicated to me that last week they came into the faith for the first time. That was an exciting moment to see that and see that all around this auditorium. 
You know, the scripture says when one comes into the kingdom, even the angels in heaven rejoice. So there was a lot of hand clapping in heaven last week as well. But faith is a key thing to a healthy family. Fourth, family members agree on key values. They know what they believe. Number five, family members practice love and mutual appreciation. You go into a healthy home and it's an encouraging home. People are cheering for one another. Number six, family members sacrifice for the good of one another. They're knitted together to help each other win. Number seven, family members have common goals and interest. Number eight, family members demonstrate trust with one another. One of the things I've observed is that the bottom line of great families is that people trust one another. And one of the things that good families do is establish the concept that you can trust people. Just the opposite happens when a family breaks down. You launch a son or daughter out in the world who doesn't believe that trust even exists because in the most important unit of their life, trust didn't exist there. Number nine, in a healthy family, the husband and wife engage in regular sexual intercourse. I'm not making it up. That, that's what was in there, guys. The research says it's in the top 10 of healthy families. That's how important that intimacy is. Now, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about sex, and I called out some ladies' names, and I had a number of guys come up privately and say, boy, I wish you'd have mentioned my wife's name. So Debbie, Chris, Star, I heard you guys. Just want you to hear me say on the tape when you listen to it later that regular sex makes a happy home. <laughs> it's in the top 10. I did that for some of my friends here. And then finally, in a healthy family, the husband and wife have a firm parental coalition in raising their children. What that means is that they agree on how they want to raise their kids. Now you just look at that for a minute before you turn the page, see where your pluses and minuses are. Are there some glaring weaknesses there? The home you grew up in or the home you're now in? Those are the things that if you really want to buckle down, those would be the areas that you need to give attention to. Now number 10 says, if you'll notice, it's good for a couple to be unified in how they raise their children. I've also discovered that even more important than unity, and listen guys, more important than even unity is that you and your wife are very clear on what a child needs from you. Do you know what a child needs from you? Really needs? It has been amazing to me to see sharp couples, I mean really sharp couples over my pastoral ministry, who in other areas are brilliant. But when it comes to raising kids, they agree. But what they agree on is way off course when it comes to what a child really needs. There have been times some of us as pastors have scratched our head looking at a couple and are thinking, how did they come up with that? That that's the way to raise a child. Because we, having the experience of watching couples and child-rearing, understand that if they continue on that course, even though they agree, that child is going to leave that home wounded and weak. How did they do that? You know what I wish? 
I wish that every child was equipped for at least a short season of life that they could suddenly speak to their mom and dad just like an adult, a mature adult. And they could kind of bring their mom and dad around the table and sit down and say, now, I just got a moment to tell you this, and I'm going to go back to being a child. But I want to tell you what I really need from you. Wouldn't that be great? You would be absolutely crystal clear on what your child needs you to do and not do. Well, the good news is we have a lot of that information already through research. So for just a moment, I want to pretend that a child walks in the room and is standing here and they're speaking. It's your child and they're going to speak to you as dad. And they're going to tell you what they need for you to do and not miss. What would they say to you? Let me give you 10 things. Here would be the first. Your child would say, dad, dad, listen to me. I need you to know that somebody must be there for me in the early years. It's critical for my development. Most young moms and dads today do not know how vital the early years are and how the early years and what goes on there makes the rest of life for a child. I want you to listen to psychiatrist Paul Meyer of the Minrith Meyer Institute. Here's what he says. One of the things I have learned in my psychiatric training is that approximately 85% of a person's ultimate personality is formed by the time he or she is six years old. Six years old. Those first six years are obviously the most crucial for a child in his or her development. And yet look at our world with all that research, that scientific study where a child needs maximum attention, maximum round-the-clock love and attention. In the world of the 21st century, when a child needs that kind of attention, and we know it, is the same time we look at our world and see moms and dad increasingly giving their son or daughter to someone else as they pursue careers and other outside interests for themselves. Not knowing how much that is what I consider risky business in the development of a child that could last for a lifetime. I have something here just to show you. You can look at it afterwards. But this is a report to the nation from the Commission on Children at Risk from the Dartmouth Medical School a massive study on child development. And in this research, there were some startling findings with what we have today. Let me just give you one of the startling findings. They found that in young children, and I'm quoting here, a strong nurturing environment in the early years is crucial to properly completing the development of the brain circuitry in a child. Now let me just boil that down to what that actually means. It says when a child is born, the brain is still hardwiring itself. It hadn't completed the process. But amazingly, what completes the process is not so much biological as it is relational. Is that not shocking? If a child has a lot of love and attention, the brain will properly hardwire itself 
and create a way and a pattern of thinking that will be beneficial to the child for the rest of his or her life. On the other hand, if that child is born with that circuitry still in the formation process and mom and dad are not there for that child or their love comes up short, it's not as much as the child needs, what the research says is that rather than hardwiring itself properly, the brain goes a little haywire. It still completes itself, but it wires itself wrongly and completes itself wrongly. And what it does, it creates for the child problematic thinking and behavior patterns, listen, for the rest of their life. That they will have to use outside means, counselors, therapists, the hard realities of life to help overcome that wiring that went haywire in the early years. So if a child could speak to a mom and dad, he or she would say this, Dad, give me your best in the early years. Don't leave me alone. Child psychiatrist Hugh Messeldine summed it up this way, for better or for worse, what happens to a child early in life lives on in them as adults forever. And you, you dad, you, dad, need to know that and lead out courageously in that. Here's the second thing a child would say. Dad, dad, I need a balance of discipline, instruction, and love growing up. I need a healthy mixture of those three things. Let me put a graph up there. It's in your outline. But on this graph, you have these uh, two continuums. The vertical one is the continuum of love. The top, high love. At the bottom, low love. The horizontal on the far right, high discipline instruction. On the left, low discipline and instruction. Now, what that graph helps us to see are the four parenting styles that you see in the world today. Let's look at each of the four. For instance, in the bottom left-hand quadrant, you have what I call the neglectful parenting style. Why is it neglectful? Because... A child's growing up with very little love and very little discipline and instruction. Up above that is the permissive parenting style, where there's a lot of love, but not as much discipline and instruction. Then to the right of that is the authoritative, or yeah, the authoritative parenting style, which is high love and high discipline and instruction. Then below that, the authoritarian style, which is low on love but high on discipline and instruction. Now look at the quadrant, guys. Look up here and look at the quadrant and tell me, which one of those four parenting styles do dads naturally gravitate to? It's the authoritarian style. Why? Dads are busy. They're action figures. They don't have time to open up their heart. Many times they're trying to suppress their feeling to get the job done. And when they come home at the end of the day, tired, worn out, beaten up, they don't have time to give love as much as they have time to give direction. And so a child gets kind of the leftovers. And if a dad really works hard, there's not a lot of attention being given on the personal side, the more intimate side, the more heart side. But dad wanting to do the right things, always issuing commands from above. That's where dads tend to fall. Now, if you go back and look at the research, it tells you 
Which of those four styles are the most healthy in order? And here's what they are. You can just put numbers next to them. It won't be on the screen. But the authoritative style of high love and high discipline instruction, that is obviously the best environment for a child. Interestingly, the second best parenting style is the permissive style. Where there's a lot of love, even though there's not as much discipline and instruction. The third best parenting style is the neglectful. Where the child's just kind of wandering around on their own. And the worst parenting style of all is the authoritarian style. You know what's interesting? You meet someone who is very anti-religious, anti-God, anti-Christianity. I mean, they're, they're vehement in that anger towards religion. If you ever meet somebody like that, ask them, tell me the home you grew up in. You know what they'll usually tell you? That they grew up in a strict religious home. Where dad was constantly given the authoritative religious pronouncements, but they never saw his heart, never connected. In fact, they tell us that children raised high in love in either the authoritative or the permissive homes, children raised in those kind of homes were more likely to adopt the values of the family they grew up in. When they get to be adults, they're more likely to be responsive to authority figures and they have a greater sense of well-being. Love is what creates that. Children raised below the line of love tend to have difficulty in adopting the family values. They're always reacting to authority figures and they never have a good sense of well-being. Love is the difference maker. And isn't it interesting that the Bible says the same thing? That ancient book. Remember we looked at the verse a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But then I didn't give you the last part of the verse. But the greatest of these, finish it for me, is what? Love. Love from a dad is the determining factor, the heart, the embrace, the cheers, the words of encouragement, the hugs. That is the determining factor in the well-being of your son or daughter, not so much your discipline and instruction. Now, those things are not unimportant. I just want you to see the most important. Third, if a child could speak to us, the child would say to us, Dad, Dad, I need you to know my personality and honor it. And the sooner, the better. I mean, we spent several sessions, didn't we, in the beginning talking about living with your wife in an understanding way. And one of the ways you live with a wife in an understanding way is you know her personality. And then you begin to adjust to that personality. Guys, listen, it's just as important. In fact, maybe even more important that you know your son or daughter's personality. One of my greatest regrets as a young dad was not knowing that. I had four children. One of those children is way different than the other three. A super sensitive personality. And I didn't recognize that in the early years. And so my harsh criticisms at times or my discipline where the other kids could take it in a more normal vein, this particular child was injured because of that super sensitive personality. And I have deep regrets about that. 
Do you know your child's personality? If you look in the notes, I put that personality test again. You see it there? This personality test? Let me tell you why. If you've got a child who's 14 years old or older, you know it'd be a great thing to do. In fact, it's part of the application project this week. It'd be good for you to have a date and give your child this test. You know how to score it. And you have the information that kind of gives the characteristics. It'd be fun for them. Just sit around, have a fun evening where you test their personality and say, these are some of the characteristics that come with those personality. The, the, and really emphasize the pluses. But it gives you a way of beginning to know their personality. If you've got a child who's under 14, I'd suggest that maybe you and your wife just sit down and take that test and kind of, I mean, you know them generally, and kind of do a general guesswork test for them. And at the end say, there's a good bet. We've got a choleric or a sanguine or a phlegmatic or a melancholy. And talk about what that would mean in terms of your parenting style. But here's what I want you to know. The sooner you know your child's personality and begin to adjust your parenting style to it, the better. You take on a choleric head on, and let me tell you what you're going to have. You're going to have fights all the way through because a choleric will fight you. You get down on a melancholy, you're going to bruise their spirit and they're going to be depressed. You just need to know who they are and then adjust your parenting style based on who they are. And they want you to know that. And it's great when you can help them discover who they are and say how much you appreciate the kind of personality that they have. Fourth, a child would want to say, Dad, listen, I need you to discover my bent and actively support it. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child according to his or her bent. What is a bent? A bent is how God has gifted that child. No matter how they look on the outside, what are their gifts on the inside that need to be expressed? The one thing that you don't want to do as a dad that so many of us dads tend to want to do is to force them to become what you want them to be rather than encourage and cheer for them in what God has gifted them to be. If they're not the athlete that you wanted when the doctor said it's a boy, you got to come to terms with that. If they don't want to be a part of the family business because they have no interest in selling tires or insurance, or something like that. Are you going to support that? I had one guy who was a physician who his whole life he had been discouraged because he had left the family business not to be what dad wanted him to be. And here he was, a top surgeon in town, still being depressed every day, going to work because he hadn't gotten the salute of his dad. If your son or daughter is not as smart as you and your wife were, they just can't get it at school, that's not where they are. They're more mechanical. They like to do things with their hands. Are you going to support that? Are you going to cheer for that? Maybe a good question is, do you know the one or two things? Are you sensing the one or two things that your son or daughter is gifted in? And does that excite you? If it doesn't, they don't need to change. You need to change. You need to do internal business with you 
until you can allow them to be from your heart what God has gifted them to be. Because that's huge in the healthy development of a child. And by the way, the child is not yours. You're just a steward of a child. The child came from God and will go back to God. They're in your hands for a season to help them be what God gifted them to be. Fifth, a child wants to say, Dad, I need you to know this. Too much is too much. What do I mean by that? Let me give you three things. Too much control over a child will crush their spirits or incite them to rebellion. It's back to that authoritarian style of parenting. Guys, here's what I want you to know. You can mark this down. The quickest way to not get what you want to see in your child, the quickest way to not get what you want to get in your child is to try to guarantee getting it by over-controlling them. You grew up wild and crazy. You knew what that did to you. You don't want your son or daughter to grow up wild and crazy. So you put strict curfews on them. You have to interview every person that comes into their life. Anytime they do any little thing wrong, they get disciplined. They get banished from the room. They don't get their car for a week. You over-control to prevent them from being impure and immoral and out of control. And you know what you create? An impure, out of control, immoral child. It's like the kid who's trying to protect the little bird that they found that fell out of the nest by holding it too tight and killing it in the process. That's what too much control can do to a child. Too much is too much. Too much money too soon in a child's life will spoil that child and pacify that child and, take and steal their will to achieve. And in a prosperous America... It's so easy to give your child too much too soon. I know a lot of kids around our area that have never really worked. They'll go to college never having spent a summer really working hard. They don't know how to make up their bed. They don't know how to get to school on time. Why? Because mom and dad are doing everything for them. Paying off everything. The speeding ticket, the wreck they had. I just want you to know, too much money is too much. Thirdly, too high of expectations is discouraging. I remember years ago reading an article on George Brett. Some of you maybe remember George from the Kansas City Royals, the great baseball player. In an article on George, he said that he grew up under a dad who only had one word for him. Hire. Hire. And here he was, the most celebrated baseball player and in 1980 he was flirting right at the top of having a 400 batting average when the last game was played he walked off the field having batted 390 something the highest in the league and he was greeted by his dad in the dugout with these words five more hits and you'd have made it You know, we dads are prone that direction. Over-instructing, over-correcting, but over-expecting in a child's life. We do it because we want our sons and daughters. I mean, it comes from a good place. We want our sons and daughters to be better 
But when we press that all the time, we don't make them better, we make them bitter. And there are a lot of sons and daughters and there are a lot of men in this room who even to this day, no matter what award you win, no matter how high you climb, the, climb up the corporate ladder, no matter what things you achieve, and everybody's celebrating it but you. Because inside, you can still hear dad tell you, well, what else are you going to do? Higher. Evidently, dads have that problem because there's a verse in the Bible specifically directed towards this over-expecting. It's in Colossians 3.21. Here's what it says. It says this, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Over-expecting is what does that. And dads are prone that direction. Six, your child would say this to you and to me. Dad, I need you to show me what to believe by living it. Remember the 60s song that still played even to this day, Cats in the Cradle? I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. I mean, the, the, the real message of that song was just simply this. Values, values are caught much more than they're taught. We like to tell kids what to do, but that's not what they leave home with. You know what they leave home with? They leave home with you. And what you did behind closed doors and what you valued and how you responded to those situations. That's how they leave home. They look like us. I love this note a friend sent to me the other day about his dad. He said this, my father is 73 and I still watch him. I am still learning from him. He has become a shining example to me of how a man, no matter his age, can overcome anything in life when he partners with God. And I want to be more than ever to be like my father. I want to have his heart and his character. I am motivated every day knowing my father is showing me the way and that my son is looking to me to do the same. I want my son to be as proud of me as I am even now of my dad. You know, when a son is born into the world, he's naturally born to believe in his dad. He will give his dad thousands of credit points even before dad has earned a one of them. But happy is the son who grows up and becomes mature in life and turns and still believes in his dad and embraces in a healthy way what his dad lived out. That's what a child would tell us. On the other hand, if a child could speak, a child would warn us with these words. The child would say, Dad, I need you to know, this is real important, Dad, I need you to know you can wound me for a lifetime. As I just said, when Dad comes and embraces his son or daughter for the first time, that son or daughter naturally feels, this is my hero. Dad is my hero. And here's what I want you to know, guys. You will always be your child's hero, no matter how you live. There's just something that can never let go of that. And if you do good things, then hero and you become one and the same. They become integrated. But if you don't do so well, in fact, let's say you go off the page. Here's what I want you to know. 
they don't stop seeing you as a hero. They just start struggling with how to match what you're doing and how you lived with that word hero. And it becomes confusing to them. They don't understand how a hero would betray mom. They don't understand how, why a hero would be defined with leaving us. Never having time to, to interact with me. Too busy to be involved with me personally. They have a hard time matching hero with the double life that they see you living behind closed doors when you wear a different face on the other side of the family home. They have a hard time matching up hero with an over-controlling dad or a dad who abuses them with anger or a dad who tries to buy them off with stuff. How does that interpret in Webster's as hero? They, they can't figure it out. They keep trying to make it work. Here's what I want you to know. They never let go of the word hero, but they experience what that dysfunctional definition does. It wounds them for a lifetime. They go out into the world anger, angry, with rage, with depression, with addiction, with confusion, and pure pain, and they carry it. And we've seen it in other men's fraternities when we talk about dad, guys in here, you know, doing great in life, crying their eyes out because when you even touch that subject, they suddenly get re-engaged with this hero that let them down or abused them. And they don't know how to reconcile that. And, 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 and they're encouraged here that they got to go work that out with dad because they'll never be at peace until they do. That's how important you are as hero. Eighth, the child would tell us this, Dad, I need you to adjust your leadership style to me as I grow. When I'm a young child under 13, I need you to be my coach. And as my coach, I want you to direct me and protect me and control me. But when I hit 13, between 13 and 18, I need something different from you. I need you to change. I don't need a coach anymore. I need a cheerleader, an encourager. And if you try to coach me as a teenager, here's what you're going to get. You're going to see me roll my proverbial eyes. Give this deep sigh. And if you keep pressing me, you're going to get resistance and even rebellion. And you know why? Because between 13 and 18, I'm trying to differentiate from you, Dad. I'm trying to become my own person. I need space from you. I need to know that I'm an individual, not wedded to you for life. But just at that time where they're trying to step out on their own, that's a very insecure time. They've never done that before. And so it's not that they don't need you. They just need you to be different in your parenting style. What they most need in those teenage years is a cheerleader and an encourager. I remember making that switch with my son Garrett. And I remember in the mid-years of his teenage life, things weren't going well for him in school, with his friends, or in sports. In fact, sports was the worst of all. He felt like an utter failure. And I started cheering. It was the best thing I ever did. It wasn't getting any results early, but I kept cheering for him. When he turned 16, I took him out to his favorite restaurant, a place we'd love to go, just he and I. And at the end of our dinner, I pulled out this little letter that I'd written him. 
And I said, I want to give this to you. And I want you to look at it every day. Because this is what I believe about you. I'll just read you a little part of it. It says, Garrett, I picked this site, this restaurant, to celebrate your 16th birthday because it holds special memories for you and me. It was here that we began our journey into manhood. It was here that I shared with you the definition of manhood, and that's exactly the case. It was here we stuffed ourselves silly and laughed all the way home. Garrett, I love you, and I'm proud to call you my son. God has blessed you with many admirable qualities that I want to acknowledge here tonight. Because God has made you smart. He didn't think he was smart, but I did. Develop your mind to the fullest. Let it open up to you many worlds that people will never know about. Pursue the best with your mind, and it and God will reward you. Because God has made you so loyal and sensitive, keep reaching out to your friends. You feel for people and can easily enter their successes or pain without regard to yourself. That's a rare quality. Few know as I know what a loyal friend you are and will be to those around you through life. And finally, because God has given you a love for sports, make the most of these next few years. He began to cry when I said that. Because that's where the pain was. Push yourself. Set goals. Work to be your best. Don't let any obstacle, especially fear or lack of apparent progress, keep you from being the best you can be. That's all you can ask for yourself, Garrett. But Garrett... Ask nothing less. I love you and always will. Dad. Now, you know, after that evening, that little note sat out on his dresser. And for a year, nothing really much changed, but I could see a difference in his spirit. I'd cheer for him. And those of you who know my son know some of the limitations athletically, but did he maximize those? Absolutely, he did. By his senior year, he's captain of the football team. He had a 4.5 grade point average. Got a full scholarship to any university he wanted to go to. And he has some lifelong friends, some of which are in this room, that he still cherishes to this day. And I think it turned right when he was about to go off the cliff with a dad who was willing to cheer for him and friends who were willing to cheer for him. That's what you need to be during those teenage years. Then after 18, a child needs you to be a consultant. And that is, they invite you in when they need you to come in. You don't go un in to their life uninvited, but they need you at times to come in and listen and support them. Night, the child would say to you this, Dad, I need you to make some great memories with me to live on. One of the things I've discovered listening to guys tell their story and also, this is in textbooks as well, is that there is, listen guys, this is really important. There is a direct correlation between the memories we choose to keep in our mind and the lifestyle we live. Isn't that amazing? The memories, we have selective memories, but the memories we choose to keep reinforce the lifestyle and are the support system to the lifestyle that we choose to live. And therefore, great memories help create a great lifestyle. I'll never forget walking into a businessman's office one day and there kind of right behind his desk on the credenza was this little picture of him and his dad duck hunting. And I just made the offhanded comment seeing that picture there. 
well, I guess you and your dad did a lot of hunting and fishing together, didn't you? And he turned to me and said to me, no, that was the only time I ever went duck hunting with my dad. We kind of stopped there for a minute. I didn't know exactly what to say. And then he kind of smiled and he said, but that memory was so pleasant. It reminds me why I need to be doing those things every day with my kids. And I thought, wow, one moment with dad duck hunting, the only time he ever went. He took that one memory and stuck it there and it has shaped his entire parenting. That's how important memories are. Making great memories are important. You know, years ago, since I'm speaking of great memories, I took my son Mason and his friend Walker up this mountain. 12,000 feet. Scared me to death all the way to the top. But we went. We belayed up. That's a picture of us getting ready to go. And then we rappelled down this mountain. And we made an incredible memory. So much so that after it was over, my mountain guide, Russell Rainey and myself, got together and decided to create a father-son adventure program in Jackson Hole, Wyoming called Christ in the Tetons. And I've got the web address in your notes for a reason, and that is this. It's a wonderful experience if you guys have a 14-year-old or up to go out and climb mountains and whitewater raft and fly fish and horseback ride and those kind of things and then have these intimate father-son moments while you're talking about manhood for a week. You create this incredible memory. And if you'd like to know more about that, you can go to the website. And if you think, well, you know, my wife would like to do something like that. This year we're starting a mother-daughter adventure program out in Jackson Hole. But that's just so you can know that that exists. But the point is, the point is this, great memories at home help buttress a great lifestyle later on. And then lastly, but not least, a child would say this, Dad, I need you to love God and share Him with me. Children have a natural curiosity about God. You know that Dartmouth study that I showed you a moment ago that came out of this publication, it supports the fact that when children come into the world, their minds are wired, believe it or not, their minds are wired to believe in a transcendent being. They want to think up and bigger than themselves. And as a dad, you can either take advantage of that and help fill that curiosity with your relationship with God, or you can leave them wanting But everything says that spirituality is essential to the well-being of a child. So, Dad, you need to be able to share that with them. Okay, guys, our child's going to leave the stage now. Those are the ten things a child would say with passion to a dad. These are the things that I need. Don't let me leave home without these things. They're the big picture they're the big pictures of parenting. Let me conclude with these two final thoughts very quickly. First, children are God's gifts to us. In fact, one of the best gifts of life. And secondly, children are hard work. <laughs> but nothing brings greater joy, especially when after all you've done and sacrificed for, they grow up 
and they stand tall and they look healthy and they're difference makers. I think that's what John had in mind in 3 John 4 when he said these words. He says, I have no greater joy than this, than to see my children walking in the truth. I mean, can you imagine yourself, 60, 70-year-old man, and regardless of what your sons or daughters do, you're just kind of sitting there reflecting in life and you're looking out at them and they're standing tall in the community. They're honorable. They're difference makers. They're loving. They know how to engage people and they have a good sense of themselves that you get to enjoy. You know, it just seems that about the time dad figures that out, the kids are leaving home. And nobody captures that moment better than Irma Bombeck years ago in this article. I want to read it to you because it just helps us feel that for a moment. Here's what she said. When Mike was three, he wanted a sandbox. And his father said, well, there goes the yard. We'll have kids over here night and day, and they'll throw sand into the flower beds, and cats will make a mess in it, and it'll kill the grass for sure. And Mike's mother said, the grass will come back. When Mike was five, he wanted a jungle gym set that swing, that, with swings that would take his breath away and bars that take him to the summit. And his father said, good grief. I've seen those swing sets in backyards, and do you know what they look like? They look like mud holes in a pasture. Kids digging their gym shoes in the ground. It'll kill the grass. Mike's mother said, it'll come back. Between breaths, when Daddy was blowing up the plastic swimming pool, he warned, you know what they're going to do to this place? They're going to condemn it and use it for a missile site. I hope you know what you're doing. They'll track water everywhere. You'll have a million water fights. You won't be able to take out the garbage without stepping in mud up to your neck. And when we take this thing down, we'll have the only brown lawn on the block. It'll come back, Mike's mother said. When Mike was 12, he volunteered his yard for a camp out. As they hoisted the tents and drove in the spikes, his father stood in the window and observed, why don't I just put the grass seed out in cereal bowls for the birds <laughs> and save myself the trouble of spreading it around? You know for a fact that those tents and all those big feet are going to trample down every single blade of grass, don't you? And don't bother to answer me. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say it'll come back. The basketball hoop on the side of the garage attracted more crowds than the Winter Olympics. And a small patch of lawn that started out with a barren spot the size of a garbage can lid soon grew to encompass the entire side yard. Just when it looked like the new seed might take root, the winter came and the sled runners beat it into ridges. And Mike's father shook his head and said, I've never asked for much in this life. Only a small patch of green grass. And his wife smiled and said, It'll come back. This fall, the lawn was beautiful. It was green and alive, and it rolled out like a sponge carpet along the drive where gym shoes had trod, along the garage where bicycles used to fall, and around the flower beds where little boys used to dig with iced teaspoons. But Mike's father never saw the yard. He anxiously looked beyond the yard and asked with a catch in his voice, he will come back, won't he? That's what parenting is all about. For those of you who have a child, you've received the greatest title, Dad. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. 
Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.